Obsession. The domination of one's thoughts or feelings by a persistent idea, image, desire, or person. A story I will share with you this Tuesday. To be or not to be Mormon? That was the question for Jody Arias. But what happens when you mix business with pleasure and promises with lies? Was she ever going to be the perfect Mormon wife? Or was she always going to be the dirty little secret? This is the murder of Travis Alexander and the batshit crazy story of the infamous Jody Arias. You're welcome, Alex Vega. <laughs>
Uh, she was one of five kids, actually, all together. And it is said that, for the most part, she had a good relationship with her siblings. Although uh, Jody would be quoted later stating that she did suffer emotional and physical abuse from her parents. She claims that she used to get beat with belts or wooden spoons. Both parents say that she had kind of a delusion and she just kind of like lashed out as a teen and got in trouble for a few things. And then she had this delusion. She developed this delusion later that she had this like terrible childhood, which in reality she really didn't. So it's kind of like a tit for tat with the parents and her. She dropped out of high school in the 11th grade, but she did eventually earn her GED. Uh, but I guess most prominently about Jody was that she had a passion for photography. And she was actually really talented in it. And her parents say that she started liking this around the age of 10. And as she grew up, she got better. And this led her into some part-time professional gigs, I think, as like a teen and a young, you know, like 18, 19 year old. Um, but like any good artist and stuff... Some of us are obviously forced to take other jobs that pay the bills, and she ended up becoming like a server to help make ends meet. Uh, Jody was also known to be the type of girl who always had a boyfriend. I guess it started around age 16 and went from there. I can totally relate to Jody in this because I've always been that type of girl too. I kind of started around, I think. 14 is when I had my first like serious boyfriend because I dated a junior when I was a freshman. So, you know, and I remember our relationship was the end all stop all. So (laughs) I can totally relate to her as far as like jumping from boyfriend to boyfriend. I felt more comfortable being in relationships than being like a single girl. Except for now. Here I am, single. <laughs> so anyways, around the age 26, Jody then meets uh, a man by the name of Daryl Brewer. He was a restaurant manager at the restaurant she had been working at at the time as a waitress. And it looks like they began dating in 2003. And things got serious between them because they eventually bought a house together in Palm Desert which that's probably cool. probably was cheap for them to do that. Eventually, Jody then left her life as a waitress and she started to becoming having an interest in the prepaid legal service, aka PPL. And uh, in around February of 2006 is when she kind of started to dabble and, you know, find people that were working in this area. Now, in like the specials that I watched and in the articles, it said that Jody did grow up as a Christian and it is, I, I'm kind of confused as thinking, I think she was into the Mormon religion or had at least known about it. But from what I gather, it looks like she didn't really become involved in the Mormon religion until she ended up meeting the infamous Travis Alexander.
That's right. It's CBD Store. Located on 31801 Mission Trail in Lake Elsinore, California, this is Inland Empire's only premium CBD store. You guys, seriously, they have CBD-infused water, oils, tinctures, gummies, roll-ons, bath bombs, scrubs, lotions, so much more. You have to go check it out for your one-stop CBD shop. It's CBD Store in Lake Elstar, California. In September of 2006, while out at a conference for PPL in Las Vegas, Nevada, Jody Arias and Travis Alexander meet for the first time. So from what I understand, they were actually set up like on a blind date and they had mutual friends and these mutual friends were actually one of Jody's friends that were like recruiting her for the PPL business and it invited her to this convention to begin with. And Travis was there single. So a lot of them, I guess, brought their spouses and one of, you know, they must have had the idea of, oh, you know, our friend Travis is alone and Jody's alone. They have this like kind of like nice dinner that they set up at this convention for people to go to, but you need like a ticket to go. So they thought, why not? Let's have this pair meet, you know, and kind of, you know, have everybody attend. And that's exactly what happens. And it was said that there was definitely an immediate attraction between the two of them. And I'm sure a lot of us are familiar with the saying of what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. Uh, and, you know, at this time, you know, Travis is living in Arizona and Jody's living in California. So I think at the beginning it was like a nice casual exchange, but they were very sexually attracted to each other. Um, they began, you know, talking, but I think before they left that Vegas weekend, they must have had some sort of sexual encounter because they kept talking after that. And they didn't just talk every once in a while or, you know, once a week, they started exchanging daily text messages and emails and, you know, they, you know, they had already started the sexual relationship between themselves, which was, I guess, you know, obviously we talked about earlier was a big no-no in the Mormon religion. And, you know, obviously since they were starting to talk and everything, you know, Travis probably expressed that he couldn't date anyone unless they were part of that religion. So this is when Jody in the next two months, basically it takes the leap of faith and she decides to become baptized by the church, church of Latter-day Saints in November of 2006. And it is said that Travis Alexander would be her sponsor for this. Now, during this time, you know, Jody Arias was still actually living with her boyfriend, Daryl at the time, you know, so when she met Travis at the convention, in September, 
then she was still with Daryl and then she returned back home from the convention. She broke up with Daryl, but they were still sharing the house back in Palm Desert together. So by December of 2006, they decided to finally part ways. I think they sold the house or I think she might have moved or something like that. But by February of 2007, Jody had decided to make the move from California to Mesa, Arizona. And her and Travis decide to make it official that they were actually going to try and be like a couple. So they dated, but this relationship between Travis and Jody only lasted for about five months before they actually broke up in June of 2007. Now, the relationship between Jody that developed with Travis during this time was considered, I would say, like a deep one on both of their parts. Not only was it a physical relationship, you know, but I think Jody had this like thought in her head of how life was supposed to be with Travis. Kind of like a laid out plan. She would become Mormon. Her and Travis would get married and they basically would simply live happily ever after. But honestly, I think during this five months when they were together, this fantasy slowly crumbled under Jody's like jealousy and, you know, so it's, it's said that she kind of smothered Travis a lot in the relationship, you know, and then I guess sometimes they kind of had this like cat and mouse game because, Anytime that she would try and like back away her feelings, Travis would just then pull her closer, you know? So Travis was basically the main cat of this as, you know, Jody was the mouse. And this in turn, I think, fucked with Jody's mind a lot. And I think too, also in her head, she thought she was going to be the girl, like I'm it. I'm going to be the one that's going to settle Travis Alexander down. He's going to be my husband. But unfortunately for her, I don't think he felt the same way. I think he thought she was a good lay, but she wasn't wife material. And, you know, after they broke up too, like any good old fling, you know, Travis confused her even more. They both confused each other by still continuing the sexual relationship between them both. So I think in turn, it created like this fantasy where it made Jody still think she had a chance and it still satisfied Travis's craving of still wanting to have sex because, you know, he wasn't technically allowed to in the church. So it's kind of crazy though, because during the breakup, you know, if Travis decided to date another woman, you know, which he did, uh, Jody would definitely somehow intervene. A lot of friends and stuff say that she was reported, um, of like stalking him a lot in emails. She would send the women that he was dating, threatening emails, Uh, she was like, I guess she was described as super jealous. Like while her and Travis had the relationship, the friends just had noticed certain outings, like how she was just a very needy girlfriend. 
she never let him go anywhere alone. Um, she became jealous when he talked to like other girls, even if it was like right in front of her and totally platonic. So a lot of his friends describe her, describe her as a very obsessed woman and how obsessed she became with Travis. But at the same time, you know, here's Travis on the other end, still seeing her. He's still sleeping with her, you know, and you know, guys, you all are good sometimes when you want to get the women into bed as far as like, you know, what, what you say to each woman to be able to slip back in, you know, promising them whatever each time, not knowing what your consequences are if you're like promising this shit to women that you're, you don't have any interest in going further with. So I think also too, in the, in Travis's eyes, Jody was never going to be good enough for him. She was never going to be the perfect Mormon wife. She obviously already broke the rules and was having premarital sex with him. And the jealousy thing, I'm sure, was like a huge turnoff. And that just comes with anybody, you know? So as Jody thought she was getting closer to Travis, Travis would pull away, promising her that it would be different I don't know, all the while, all the while knowing that he was, he just never, he was never going to marry her. Okay. (laughs) And I'm sure that he made it seem like he was going to, to her, that he was going to marry her, but to his friends and his family, she was just his dirty little secret. And I think in the beginning, like even like when the breakup first happened, he probably got away with being like, don't let anybody know what's going on. And she was like, okay. But eventually after time passes and you still keep sleeping with her, she's eventually going to be like, okay, we can tell everybody like we're back together. We're, you know, seeing each other again. And I don't think he ever had that intention with her at all. I mean, records will even, so there's another thing I want to touch on too of the other part of this, um, which, you know, Zelina from Hair Raising Horror actually pointed out to me when she knew I was going to do the Jody Arias case. Uh, she had said that, you know, Travis was really, you know, abusive to Jody. I mean, there was a lot of text messages that I read between the both of them. And there was times where she really like backed down and tried to not like argue with him. And he just kind of went at her and this was post breakup, you know? So you would think that while you're with your boyfriend or significant other, they're going to be like kind of crazy, but you don't expect them to be crazy like that after you break up. And so you can see the definitely, he was never like physically abusive with her, but you can definitely see like the emotional abuse. He put her down a lot in the text messages that I read. He accused her of being a whore when she would talk with other guys. Like she's not a whore if she's, you know, like, yeah, she's sleeping with you, but she's trying to move on. And then you're just like saying like jealous things, making her think other things, you know, I don't know. He just said a lot of contradicting things. Like he just didn't want to be with her. But then like after she like conformed and told him what he wanted to hear or like wrote what he wanted to see, then he would like 
tell her that he's sorry and that he loves her. I don't know. It was, it was crazy. It was a whirlwind. And so it probably left her thinking a lot too. Like, is he jealous? Does he want me back? You know, and it definitely probably stroke his ego to put her down on many occasions. You know, you could just read the text message. You could see he could, he's definitely jealous at times or like just as annoyed by her. And instead of just being nice about it, he definitely rips her a new one. So the uh, emotional abuse was definitely there on his part. He wasn't as innocent as everybody made him seem or as nice as everybody made him seem, which I just got to touch on this. The friends later on do say that, um, that he, you know, that they, they were kind of like always asking like the girls at least that were like, like, so the guy friends that would hang out with them and the girlfriends that were around, they would sometimes ask Jody, like, how do you put up with him? Like, how do you put up with his sort of like behavior, you know? And Jody would just kind of be like quiet about it and stuff. So I think there was already like somewhat of an issue there as far as the way he like treated her in front of other people. So yeah, there's definitely that part of it. So by March of 2008, the two were actually still sleeping together, of course. And by, so this is well after they broke up in June of 2007. And by April of 2008, Jody relocated to Eureka, California and moved in with her grandparents. Now, Sometime in May of 2008, Jody's grandparents' house would actually be burglarized and a little couple of things would go missing from the home. I think some money, some jewelry, but in particular, a 25 caliber handgun would go missing and they, they, it was never recovered. So they were never able to find it and why Am I telling you this about Jody's grandparents? Why is this relevant? Well, stay tuned. We're still going. During the first week of June in 2008, Jody Arias rented a car and took a road trip out to Salt Lake City, Utah for a PPL meeting and to meet a man named Ryan a so-called friend and a possible new love interest for Jody. Jody states that she never saw Travis on that trip, nor was she anywhere near Mesa, Arizona during that trip. Also during that same week, Travis Alexander had a vital meeting that was set up at his work in which he actually missed. Hmm. He was a no-call, no-show which was very unlike Travis, but people were kind of like, maybe he got caught up with something else. He'll soon turn, turn up, or so everyone thought. But the grand suspicion came when Travis was actually scheduled to leave that weekend for a trip to Cancun, in which he did not show to the airport. This is when his friends knew something was wrong. And the first thing they did was go to Travis's house to see where he was. On June 9th, 2008, after knocking on the door a few times and getting no response, 
the friends of Travis decided to finally walk through the door of his home. And as they did, they found the place to be riddled in blood splatter. They began searching for their friend. And once they, en- and once they entered the master bedroom, they found Travis in a gruesome shower scene as they looked in the shower. He was dead. Lying in a pool of his own blood on the bathroom shower floor. Travis was found to have 27 to 29 stab wounds, a gunshot to the head, and his throat was slit from ear to ear. The friends called 911 immediately. Now, it looks like investigators, of course, came to the scene and found mounds of evidence at the scene. Not only blood and DNA, but crazily, they recovered a digital camera that they found in the washing machine at the time. Now, coroner will actually report that Travis had been dead for some time, so that they suspected that he didn't die the day of June 9th that he was found. They think he died somewhere around June 4th. And the one person that actually became of interest in this story came from that fateful 911 call that Travis's friends had made after they discovered the gruesome scene. The 911 operator asks the friend on the phone if they knew of anyone who would want to harm Travis. And it was actually a girl on the other end of this 911 call. And for some reason, she happened to mention Travis's ex-girlfriend. And she couldn't remember her name as she's on the 911 phone call. And you can hear her in that moment that she kind of like asked someone, hey, 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 what's the name of the girl that Travis had dated? And like in the background, you hear, Jody. And then you hear clear as day. The girl is like, yes, her name is Jody. Jody Arias. So police naturally immediately turn their attention to Jody Arias the former girlfriend of Travis Alexander. Because like in any case, you know, you're going to suspect the people that are closest to Travis or to the person murdered at the time. So when they began investigating Jody, they found that she was kind of a centerpiece to this case. Investigators definitely believed that she might have known what happened to Travis or definitely had some answers for them, and they were determined to lock onto this quickly. So it's reported on July 9th of 2008, almost one month after the heinous murder, Jody Arias was actually indicted by investigators on first-degree murder charges for the death of her former boyfriend, Travis Alexander. Now, this news hit the media like wildfire. Uh, What investigators found out to get this arrest is what we all want to know. So, first and foremost, once they learned about Jody, they took her in for questioning. And, you know, once they got to, you know, obviously sift through all the evidence too, you know, they were like, let's get this girl in. 
So at first, Jody's story says that she claimed that she hadn't seen Travis since she had moved out of the home back in April and definitely hadn't seen him the weekend that he so-called went missing. Investigators also knew at this point that she wasn't at home in her Eureka, California home at the time. She had actually decided to take a road trip because cell phone records that they obtained from her will show that she was en route to what looks like would have been Mesa, Arizona. She claims it's Salt Lake City, Utah. However, the cell phone records also show gaps in time. So periods of time where the cell phone was actually shut off. She claims that she needed this to save like her battery at the time. Um, well, at first she says that she gets lost and goes, it goes missing. And then it's like she needed to save it for her battery. But regardless, this leaves investigators wondering what the hell Miss Arias was doing for these gaps of time. And that's obviously not a good thing to have in a murder case is unaccounted time. So the other thing that investigators also discovered was the rental car that Jody had used. They found traces of blood in the car uh, that wasn't Jody's. They would later discover that in the rental car was Travis Alexander's blood. Uh, and then it, her behavior in the interrogation room was a bit odd to begin with as well. At first, Jody just came with the deny, deny, deny. She hadn't seen Travis. She hadn't spoken to him. She, you know, she didn't know what happened. She's here to help, you know, blah, blah, blah. So I get, you know, investigators, you know, when they're interrogating people, sometimes this can happen over a lengthy period of time, meaning hours. So, you know, they get up and leave these people in the interrogation room, if you didn't know. And um, they have cameras normally set up in these rooms. So investigators will step out of the room and leave you kind of by yourself. But all the while, you are not alone. Those cameras are capturing every movement and every word that you say while investigators are not in there. And Jody just so happened to do some strange behavior. Uh, for example, she would do headstands. She would sit on the floor with her head, like kind of like laying in the chair's lap. Uh, she would even be caught at one point singing Oh Holy Night. So she wasn't exactly dis exhibiting behavior of a distraught ex-girlfriend or somebody who was concerned about what was going on. And investigators took notice of this. So they used her, you know, that, and they began to press her with the evidence that they did have. So not only did she already look kind of like your picture ex, psycho ex-girlfriend from all the past behaviors that they had found out from interrogating, you know, friends and family, but they also had what investigators like to call a smoking gun. And this would be the digital camera. So if you're familiar with this case, you'll know the infamous camera that the killer had tried to, or someone had tried to throw in the washing machine and it tried, you know, obviously started the wash and tried to wash it. I mean, this is kind of one of those things like how stupid can you be? 
So law enforcement, of course, took this camera and over a couple of weeks, they were able to actually develop the pictures. And not only what they found on that camera was disturbing, but it was damning as well. So the pictures showed that Travis and Jody were together the weekend of June 4th. There were like racy photos of the couple that showed that they were having sexual relations with each other because there were photos of Travis that were half naked in the bed and same with Jody. And you can clearly see that it's her. They also found photos of right before what investigators believed to be the murder of Travis. And they found that Jody had taken the pictures of him as he was in the shower. Some of the shots were like of Travis standing like, you know, so the pictures like from, from behind. So it's showing like the water cascading down his back. And there's even one where he's like looking right into the camera and the shower doors there and the water's like dripping on his face, you know, and she was super into photography. So, but probably the worst one was the fact that whoever was using the camera, once they had put the camera down, it actually kept taking like snapshots. And I don't know how this happened after they put the camera back down, but one of the worst pictures that they ended up showing Jody was actually Travis lying on the shower floor. He was covered in blood and just above like his head, you could see that there was a woman's foot standing right there. And you could see like the pants that the person was wearing and the photos that they found of Jody before she was actually in those same pants. And even if you're doubting it even more, every single one of those pictures were time-stamped. So there's not really much arguing she could do. Uh, she tried, though, because she they presented all this evidence to Jody, and she tried to talk her way out of it. But I think she knew she was caught in some way, so she finally began to talk. And this is when Jody begins to shift her story and say that two intruders actually came in. She told investigators that people came in as her and Travis were together and they held him at gunpoint, a man and a woman. And they then began to beat and kill Travis. And Jody was just kind of like in a stock shocked state because they were holding her at gunpoint and threatening to kill her and do the same thing. So she states that she let these people kill Travis while she fled in fear of her own life. And she says she claims, that, you know, she feels really bad that she just left him there and she didn't know what to do. She didn't want to report it to law enforcement right away because she was in fear of what might happen to her. Were these people going to come back and like get her? So investigators, of course, though, call bullshit on this version. They state that when they did the investigation of the Travis, you know, of Travis's home, they realized that there was no indication of a break-in. So they didn't assume that there was some sort of robbery, no locks or windows had been broken, and more importantly, nothing had been stolen. So not much to corroborate 
a break-in or Jody's chain of events. And then, you know, if you think about it, there's all that gap in time for her so-called road trip. You know, she says that she got lost and then, you know, her phone or whatever, but this gives her plenty of time to be there and to arrive on June 4th, you know, and have time to kill Travis and then still make it to Salt Lake City, Utah, which what her alibi shows. So it's kind of crazy to think of all this evidence that they have, you know, and it's crazy how she just kind of sat there and tried to talk her way through it all. And for the next two years, Jody Arias would be awaiting her trial for this murder conviction that she has. But during this time, this woman will appear on every news channel you could possibly think of and, you know, say her side of the story. And, you know, she claims her innocence the whole time. And, you know, eventually people kind of like, you know, see the holes in her story and law enforcement end up poking at it so much that like two years after the murder, she finally does admit that she was the one that killed Travis. But now she claims that her story is in self-defense. She will claim that Travis was physically and emotionally abusive towards her. So on the fateful weekend, she came to be with him because she was heading to Utah, but he guilted her into coming over to see him first. They ended up having sex, and then somewhere after that, they ended up getting into an argument, and he, like, I guess was looking up something on the computer and ended up getting frustrated with it and threw this, like, CD-ROM disc at her, which frightened her, and she said that she ran into his room and slammed the door to kind of hide herself from him, and she thought about, like, what am I going to do to protect myself? And she knew that Travis, or she claims that Travis had a gun on the top shelf of his closet. Now, this gun just so happened to be a 25 caliber handgun. You know, like the one I mentioned earlier that went missing from the grandparents' house. Yeah, he was shot with that type of gun. And so she says that he barges in. She had already grabbed the gun from the closet. She was yelling at him to stop and she backed away. She was getting into the master bathroom at this point. And that's when he lunged at her and she said she didn't mean to, but the gun went off. And that she can't really remember anything else except hearing Travis say, I'll fucking kill you, you bitch. So now this is her story. So Jody has now changed her story for the third time. And this is a confession that she does two years after the case. So I'm sure a lot of you are also wondering like, okay, well, she's two years out of this case. Why hasn't she gotten, why hasn't the trial started and stuff? But... 
you know, like any quote unquote famous case, Jody pretty much made a spectacle of herself. And they, you know, when people, you know, when they do that, they, they can kind of stretch the starting of the case. And so for me, I always call it like the Ted Bundy (laughs) because she ended up pulling the stunt where she like fired her legal team in hopes that she could represent herself. And then she obviously quickly learns that she's an idiot and she can't do that. Um, And then it looks like her a month later, like the legal team was finally reinstated in again, again. And by this time, another two years go by this. So this would bring us to December 10th, 2012 where the trial of Jody Arias finally begins and takes about a year with all the testimonies that go through and by, Oh no, not a year, like kind of like five months. So it looks like by May 8th, 2013, Jody Arias was convicted of first degree murder of Travis Alexander. There's some footage that shows Jody that actually she just stares in silence and cries as each juror agrees with the sentence because the judge, you know, asked juror number one, do you agree? And they say, yes, guilty. Um, However, though, when it came to the punishment phase, the jury actually deadlocked on Jody's case. And this happened twice where the jury deadlocked on whether she should get life in prison or the death penalty. So this obviously prolonged the punishment phase for Jody. And trust me, she went to great lengths to, you know, show what a model inmate she was. So think about it, you guys. At this point, she's already four years she's been incarcerated Um, Because while she was in jail, you know, I mean, while she was awaiting trial and doing trial, she was in jail. So, um, so at this point, you know, she obviously doesn't want to get the death penalty and she is determined to kind of like plead her case to the jury. And she tells the jury that she has plans to make a difference while in prison She talks about, like, her aspirations of starting a recycling program, a book club, a Spanish class to teach inmates how to speak Spanish. She has, like, this t-shirt idea for an abusive relationship slogan that she came up with that says, Survivor. And most of all, that she would be able to grow out her hair and donate it as often as she could to the Locks of Love cancer patients. So... How could anybody put her to death after that? (laughs) Crazy man. When I read that, I was like, are you kidding me? Like how she just like, please. And I, I mean, to each their own on that, but I just thought it was a little wacky on her part to go through all these like great lengths of all this stuff that she's going to do after you slaughtered somebody else's life. Okay. Anyways, by April 13th, 2015, a judge finally made the ruling in the punishment phase of her sentencing and ordered Jody to serve a life sentence without the possibility of parole. As of 2020, as I record this podcast, Jody Arias resides in the Arizona State Corrections Department. She is inmate number 28 
1-800-331-1129. She will remain in the Arizona State Prison Complex of Perryville, or in Perryville, for the rest of her life. Uh, she oddly has like a website you can actually go visit that I found, jodiarias.com, and you can go take a look at I guess her artwork that she does from prison and she currently sells it. There's one of them that I saw in there. It was like 600 bucks. I was like, what the fuck? The fuck? And does she get this shit? Like, does she get this money? Like, I hope not. I don't know. I heard it like, I heard it goes onto her books, you know? So I don't know. People correct me if I'm wrong on that, but I'm sure she capitalizes it on some way because there was never a ruling against her that, you know, she couldn't speak out. Kind of like it's different for Chris Watts and other people that have higher profile cases. So, I don't know. I looked at her photos. I mean, I looked at the artist drawings and some of them are pretty good. Like, I'll I'll give her that. So, the website also talks about a couple of, you know, things you can look at. Like, her appeal or, like, why they think she's innocent. And you can join a group of people that think that she's innocent. And I think a, a... safe place to be able to talk about that. So, you know, whatever you think after this episode will, you know, you can determine whether you'll go on to that website or not. Meanwhile, I do have to point out with all of this going on with her, you know, Travis Alexander's life has ended. His family and friends will no longer get to enjoy and love Travis. He will never get married. He'll never have a career He'll never have a family or have kids. And he certainly won't be publishing artwork from prison. So my condolences to the Alexander family and everyone truly affected by this horrendous crime. I guess you just never really know who anyone is and what great lengths they will go to you know, when obsession comes into play and you never really know how obsessed someone could ever really be with you. So watch out till next time. See you next week on Tuesdays with Trisha. Peace out. Have a good night. Don't forget to listen to Tuesdays with Trisha. Yay!